Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. When George Washington wrote his final will in the months before he died in December 1799, he named Bushrod Washington as heir to his papers and to Mount Vernon. He took possession of his uncle's Virginia plantation when Martha Washington died in 1802. But Bushrod was not as interested in agriculture as George had been. He was a lawyer who later became an associate justice on the United States Supreme Court, where he became a staunch ally of Chief Justice John Marshall. Yet, like George, Bushrod owned numerous enslaved people, and he became one of the founding members of the American Colonization Society, an organization dedicated to resettling freed people in Africa. On today's show, Professor Gerard Macliaca joins me to discuss his new book, Washington's Heir, The Life of Justice Bushrod Washington, published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Magliaca is the Samuel R. Rosen Professor at the Robert H. McKinney School of Law at Indiana University. So read over your law notes and let's cross-examine Washington's heir with Professor Gerard Magliaca. Gerard, Bushrod Washington has a very famous last name. He has a kind of curious first name, and he is, as you say in the title of your book, Washington's heir. He goes on to become an associate justice of the United States Supreme Court. But what should we know about Bushrod's early life? Where does he come from and how does he fit into the Washington family? So Bushrod Washington is the eldest son of George Washington's younger brother, Jack. Jack Washington is basically the only sibling that George Washington is close to throughout his life and confides in. Jack was the person who ran Mount Vernon while George was away fighting in the French and Indian War and would have inherited Mount Vernon had George been killed in the war per an agreement between the two of them. After the uh, French and Indian War ends, Jack marries Hannah Bushrod. And that is the source of the crazy name. They move to her family estate, which is about 75 miles from Mount Vernon, also in Virginia. Bushrod is born there in 1762. As you say, Jack was George's favorite brother. What was their relationship like, and how did it shape George's future relationship with his nephew? George needs someone to manage his affairs while he's fighting in the militia. And Jack is the only of his full siblings that he really feels like he can trust and rely upon. Of course, he had other half-siblings who had either passed away or that he was not particularly close to. Basically, Jack is running Mount Vernon for a couple of years. Even later in life, Jack is someone that George turns to to deal with all kinds of sensitive family matters relating to their mother or relating to other siblings who have financial or health problems. And this ends up being mirrored in George's relationship with Bushrod after Jack's death because Bushrod Washington becomes kind of the go-to person for George on various sensitive matters, including things related to the Mount Vernon household and things political and legal. I think in some ways Bushrod was the successor to Jack. And indeed, George said in his will that he made Bushrod his heir in part because of what he felt he owed to Jack Washington. I want to take a deeper dive into the relationship between Bushrod and George here in just a second, but I'm curious, why write a biography of Bushrod? The first thing is that no one had written a book about Bushrod, and I'm attracted to projects where no one has ever really examined something before. 
rather than, say, writing another book about a well-known subject like Abraham Lincoln or George Washington himself. The second thing is that Bushrod, because of his family position and his judicial position, kind of knew everyone who was prominent in American political and legal life during the founding. And after that, he knew Jefferson, he knew Madison, he knew Marshall, and worked with them in various ways. And yet no one had really looked at these interactions from Bushrod's point of view. The other thing you could say about it is that this is really the only book that I've written about the founding, and you have to choose some point of view to approach such a large, profound event like that, and I thought this might be a good way to do that. Tell us a little bit more about Bushrod's relationship with George. As we know, George Washington was a plantation owner. He sees himself as a farmer. Did Bushrod see himself in his early youth as a farmer in the mold of a George Washington? Definitely not. Bushrod is a lawyer through and through from the time that he's about 18. That's when he first becomes interested in the law, and he maintains that interest throughout his life. It's ironic, of course, that he inherits Mount Vernon and then has to run one of the most important plantations in the United States when he's not really either cut out for that or particularly interested in doing that. And he says as much on many occasions, but nevertheless, he feels like it's something he kind of has to do as a family duty once it's been given to him. No, he was never really interested in anything aside from the law. Indeed, People who knew him well liked him and enjoyed socializing with him, but they often thought that his kind of range of interests beyond the law was sort of narrow in that one person said he wasn't sure that Bushrod knew who wrote Macbeth. Perhaps that was a joke. I don't know. But it kind of was meant to say that law was what he lived and breathed. And why was that? Why was the law so attractive to him? That's harder to say. I think he arrives at William and Mary as an 18-year-old. And at William and Mary, George Wythe is a professor. He's the first law professor in the United States. He is Jefferson's teacher and I think was a charismatic man. That partly launched Bushrod or inspired him into that profession. I think he also was a man who craved or was very conscious of order That is a kind of temperament that might find the law particularly attractive. While he did have a political career to some degree, really that was the exception rather than the rule. And you can see that all through the rest of his life. Whenever he writes about legal matters, there's a kind of passion and energy there that is lacking when the conversation turns to other things. When he embarks on this course in his life, what is George Washington's reaction? Is he encouraging of Bushrod in this new pursuit, or does he want his nephew to be more like the gentleman farmer that he is? George was very encouraging. They really begin their relationship when Bushrod is about 20 years old. George is in Philadelphia. It's sort of the tail end of the Revolutionary War. Bushrod arrives, and George pays for his legal apprenticeship in Philadelphia with James Wilson, who was another of the founding fathers and was one of the most important lawyers in Pennsylvania. You know, in those days, you became a lawyer because you were an apprentice to uh, another lawyer. By arranging an apprenticeship with such a prominent person, George was sort of putting his stamp of approval on Bushrod's career choice, and it cost also a fair bit of money to arrange such an apprenticeship. And George did that as a favor, I think, to Jack, and because he probably saw some potential in Bushrod. Remember also that George did not have any children of his own. 
Bushrod was the closest thing he had to someone he could mentor and guide. And you see a lot of that in the early correspondence that George sends to him, basically giving him advice on all manner of things, as an older person will often do for younger people. So George was always approving of Bushrod as a lawyer and never seemed to think that he should do something different, except, as we might talk about later, when he tries to encourage him to run for Congress. Yeah, I'd like to turn to that part in a bit. That was a really delightful part of your book, where you really see George Washington, the political animal, really come out towards the end of his life. But as you said, Bushrod goes to study with James Wilson in Philadelphia and thus begins a lifelong love affair with that city. What was it about Philadelphia that so enamored Bushrod? Well, I think part of it was he grew up in a part of rural Virginia and had not experienced the kind of city life that Philadelphia had to offer. Philadelphia then, of course, was the national capital when he arrived and was kind of the biggest city in the United States. He also formed a number of important friendships there in Philadelphia society. Most, The most important of those was with Eliza Powell, who was a confidant of George and was the wife of the mayor and herself a very politically active person. Indeed, other than Abigail Adams, probably the most politically active woman in the United States during that era in the sense that she's the only person that George would regularly talk about politics with. And she would offer him political advice. So she took Bushrod under her wing, introduced him to a lot of people. And then for the rest of their lives was a mentor, friend. She bought him his first judicial robe when he became a judge. And when in later years he would come to Philadelphia, he would dine at her house every week. So I think some of it was personal. Some of it was the fact that Philadelphia was center of American life at the time. And I think in later years, some of it was because it was a relief to be away from Mount Vernon and all of the sort of responsibilities that he had there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, It's always fascinating to me that Bushrod inherits this famous estate, the seat of his late uncle, but in many ways, he's desperate to get away from it. He's desperate to get away from it as fast as he can and retreat to Philadelphia where he can do more exciting things in the law. When he becomes a young lawyer, does he have aspirations for the judge that he will become, or is he content with a legal practice? He was pretty content with being a practitioner, and he goes back to Virginia after his apprenticeship. He becomes a lawyer. Sometimes he does work for George, but he develops other clients. He also gets involved in politics to some extent. There doesn't seem to be any particular ambition to be a judge Although some of the things that he did in practice certainly lent themselves to the thought that he would be good at it and that that might suit him. I mean, in particular, he spent a lot of time arguing appeals in the highest court of Virginia. He also wrote a compilation of reports about cases that that court had decided, which is something that only someone who's very keen on the day-to-day work of a court would want to do. And naturally, that brought him into contact with the judges in that court. There's nothing to indicate that he was interested in becoming a judge until he was actually offered the position on the Supreme Court. Whether that was a sort of a secret ambition or not something he really thought about until it was offered to him, I can't say. 
And of course, as a young lawyer, he's in the trenches with John Marshall. What was their early relationship like? What's sort of special about the relationship between Marshall and Bushrod is that they meet and work together long before they reach the Supreme Court. When Bushrod is 18, they're in the same lectures with George Wythe at William and Mary. Then they meet again some years later when they are both serving in the state legislature in the House of Burgesses. Then they are in the ratifying convention to the Constitution for Virginia in 1788, both supporting ratification of the Constitution. And then when Bushrod moves to Richmond, where Marshall is practicing law, they become partly collaborators and partly competitors. That is, they are working on cases together sometimes, they are arguing against each other, they're chasing clients, and they also get to know each other very well socially. They serve together on the city council of Richmond. They've got a close working relationship established even before either of them becomes a judge. That sets the framework for how they're going to work with each other once they both reach the Supreme Court. There does come a moment when George Washington wants Bushrod to run for Congress. He sees the capital F Federalist Party under threat from the ascendant Jeffersonian Republicans, and he wants Bushrod and he also wants Marshall to run for Congress. Take us into George's thought process and when he tries to persuade the two men to run for Congress, and what were their reactions? George is concerned at the drift of politics. He is, of course, by this point, retired from the presidency, but he's very unhappy with Jefferson, partly because of what Jefferson had done during the Washington administration, but partly because of Jefferson's pro-French orientation in foreign policy. The congressional elections of 1798 are coming up, and George wants Federalist candidates to challenge members of the House who are both supporters of Jefferson. He decides the best way to do that is to get the two strongest candidates he can find, and he decides that that means Bushrod and Marshall. So he summons them to Mount Vernon. And for those of you who have been to Mount Vernon, you know that the study where George worked, his special private space that no one was allowed to enter without permission. So Bushrod goes in there on his own, and George informs him that this is what he wants. He wants Bushrod and Marshall to run. Now, Bushrod goes out and talks to Marshall, and they don't want to do it. They don't want to do it, in part because it would mean they're going to take a pay cut from being fairly successful lawyers. They're also not sure they can win. And Bushrod said later that he was unsure that he really was suited to politics. I mean, he was not as charismatic as Marshall was. Marshall, of course, was a far more successful politician throughout his life. Marshall says to Bushrod, look, you have to go talk him out of it. We can't do it. Bushrod goes back and he explains sort of, I, I would imagine, fairly cautiously to George why this is not a good idea or may not be a good idea. And at the end of his presentation, George just looks at him and says, Bushrod, it must be done. So Bushrod goes out and tells Marshall, look, we can't change his mind. So they decide to run for the House of Representatives. In later years, Marshall sort of embellished the story by saying that he had refused and then George had had to personally convince him to do it. And a lot of different versions of that story. But the version that Bushrod relayed to Martin Van Buren, who was later president of the United States, was more like they both caved in once George had given the it must be done command. 
I have to imagine that that was probably intimidating as hell. If you've been to Mount Vernon and you've seen the study, you know it's not a large space, and Washington was a large man even in his last years. And here you are entering the chamber of the former commanding general of the Continental Army and then the president of the United States, and you were told to do something that had to have been quite the sight to see. And it's not a surprise that Bushrod did not refuse his uncle's request. But I do like the part where he has to go back out to Marshall twice and say, all right, there's no way we're getting out of this one. It's, it's going to happen. We have to do this. Marshall had great respect for George Washington because George had been his commander throughout his military service, including at Valley Forge. He was going to probably accede to the request anyway. I don't know how much arm twisting was really required. But in Bushrod's case, it was more about deferring to the you know, head of the family. And I think that in addition to George's stature politically was a decisive factor. Bushrod gets saved because President John Adams decides to name him to the Supreme Court and he's confirmed by the Senate. Can you help us understand the Supreme Court in this period? I mean, in the modern era, the Supreme Court plays a very powerful role in our everyday lives. Is the Supreme Court that kind of force at the turn of the 19th century or is it something different? The Supreme Court is the weakest of the three branches by far when Bushrod joins it. Now, that's partly because it's a new institution. There aren't that many cases yet because the federal courts have only been operating for a few years. It also is because the whole idea that courts can strike down or invalidate laws that are unconstitutional is just in its infancy. It's not that no one thinks it's so, but it hasn't been done that much and it hasn't been done really by the Supreme Court as against a law passed by Congress. Another factor is that the justices of that period were often sent off on other tasks. So for example, First Chief Justice John Jay was sent by President Washington to negotiate a treaty with Britain. And the Second Chief Justice, who was confirmed Oliver Ellsworth, was sent by President Adams to negotiate with France. So you can imagine it's very hard for an institution like that to function well or be powerful if its leading member is being sent off for long periods of time to do other things. It really isn't until Marshall joins the court that you get something that looks more like the modern Supreme Court in terms of its authority, the fact that it's pretty much just focused on deciding cases and not doing other things, and begins to establish itself as a co-equal branch. One of the things that the justices are doing in this period is called writing the circuit. Today we have circuit courts, and that makes sense to us in our mental map of the federal court system. But in this period, the justices are literally riding the circuit. What does that mean? And what is Bushrod doing when he's riding the circuit? In those days, most of the work that Supreme Court justices did was not on the Supreme Court. They were out in the country, each had a different section, where they were expected to hold trials and hear appeals in ordinary federal cases. In Bushrod's case, that was in Philadelphia or in Trenton, New Jersey, because that was the circuit that he was given. Now, this meant a couple of things. Uh, first, it meant that for most people, the way they saw or interacted with a Supreme Court justice was in this circuit writing role, not in seeing that person on the Supreme Court. Secondly, it meant that they decided a lot of cases that had to do with subjects that today Supreme Court justices wouldn't have to deal with. Contract cases, property cases, admiralty cases, kind of bread and butter stuff. 
And they also had to hold jury trials and interact with ordinary people who were going to be sitting on a jury. I think that also it gave at least some of the justices a broader perspective, you know, especially in Bushrod's case, he was from Virginia, but he spent a considerable amount of his time each year in a different part of the country. That enhanced his nationalist view of what the federal government should be because he was seeing the country to a much greater extent than maybe others would. The only downside, really, of circuit riding was it was dangerous. They had to travel by stagecoach, and a lot of them got hurt because the stagecoach fell, fell over or they were thrown. John Marshall himself was injured a couple of times that way, broke bones. Bushrod, fortunately, didn't really ever have any injuries in traveling. It wasn't until steamboats were invented that you could sort of do that a little more safely. So there were, there were benefits to the circuit riding system in terms of Bushrod getting to live in Philadelphia a couple of months every year. But downside was the risk that you were going to be uh, hurt or killed traveling back and forth. It sounds exciting on the one part and very terrifying on the other. And he's appointed to the Supreme Court at a time when, as we said earlier, the Jeffersonian Republicans are gaining power and they are challenging the power of the federal government. They see the locus of the power in the states. And you just mentioned that Bushrod really came to see himself as a nationalist. What does that mean? And how did that manifest itself in the kinds of decisions that he's writing on the circuit and later as part of the Supreme Court? First of all, he is very much of the view that the federal courts are supreme in making and enforcing their decisions as compared to a state court or a state legislature. Now, this is an important principle that we take for granted now, but of course was very much contested during the period prior to the Civil War. So you see decisions in which Washington is always taking the side of the, or generally taking the side of federal power as against a claim of state power. And that also expresses itself not only in his own decisions that he writes as a circuit judge, but in the opinions that he joins that are authored by Marshall. Now, look, some of this perspective comes from the fact that one, Bushrod served in the military during the Revolutionary War for a period of time. Second, George was his uncle. And so George's nationalist point of view naturally kind of rubbed off, I think, to some degree on Bushrod. It's also the fact that I think Bushrod looked at what the alternative was, that is the, the alternative being proposed by Jefferson and his supporters, as simply unworkable or even dangerous to the survival of the Union. And that extended even to other complaints by states. You know, there was a period of time during the War of 1812 when some of the New England states were very unhappy about the fact that we were at war and it had hurt trade. And there was some talk about secession or various means of protesting these policies that would involve state obstruction of national authority. And Bushrod was very much against that too. So he was against it no matter who was proposing it, federalist or not. But he always felt that that was going to be something that would imperil the Union and the possibility of continued American independence. What are some cases where we see this playing out, where he's expressing this nationalist point of view? The most important example is United States versus Bright. This was a case that he presided over in Philadelphia in 1809. 
It basically involved a dispute over a pot of money between Pennsylvania and the federal government. And after many years of lawsuits, a federal court basically ordered that the money go to a certain person, and the state refused to follow that order and called out the state militia to prevent the federal authorities from getting the money. And this led to a very tense situation in the city and a kind of showdown between the governor of Pennsylvania at the time and President Madison. Finally, it was resolved and the state authorities stood down. But then there was a trial of some of the state militia leaders, a criminal prosecution saying that they had obstructed federal officials in carrying out the law. And Washington presided over this trial, which was kind of like a version of the trial of the century for Philadelphians of that period. And in charging the jury, he was emphatic in defending federal supremacy, saying that a state could not refuse to obey the order of a federal court, and basically explaining why national supremacy and national power was essential to liberty. You know, it wasn't just a thing that was in the nature of the American Constitution. It was also important to actually having liberty and something other than chaos to have federal courts be supreme in their relationship to the states. Later, you can see some of the rhetoric in that opinion or jury instruction coming forward in opinions of the Supreme Court that addressed disputes between the national court and the state courts or the national government and the states. An early leading precedent for upholding national authority against state efforts to basically undermine the union. And these cases are coming up as part of what is often referred to as the Marshall Court. There's this idea that Chief Justice John Marshall dominates the court for decades and that it's, in a sense, his will that shapes the federal judiciary and precedent for a long time. But the claim you make in your book is that we should really see this as the Marshall-Washington Court. What do you mean by that? Well, let's start with the thought that no chief justice can do everything himself. Other famous chief justices, say Earl Warren, nobody really thinks that he did everything himself. We use the chief justice as a shorthand for a kind of period of time or a group of justices who do something significant in the law. The Marshall Court is an exception because most people, and this is indeed how it's even taught now in law schools to law students, that, well, John Marshall did everything. You know, he was the Marshall Court. And everybody else was kind of just following along in his wake. So that's the claim that I want to, or myth that I want to bust, or claim that I want to challenge. I do that by looking at the internal workings of the Marshall Court to the extent that we can recover them through letters and other sources. And what we see is that Bushrod is an incredibly important, silent partner in the work of the Marshall Court. Without his contributions, you simply wouldn't have had the level of agreement within the court that you had. You wouldn't have had the sort of public success or increase in stature that you saw. And there are different ways in which we, we see that, partly sort of the culture of the court that was developed by the two of them. For example, the court would speak through one opinion as often as possible, and that that opinion would be issued in Marshall's name because he was the chief justice. The fact that the justices all lived together during the court sessions, which of course they don't do now, 
They all lived together then in a boarding house. Bushrod was essential in arranging that. Bushrod played a role, I think, in getting the others to agree that uh, they should speak through a single opinion issued by the chief justice. And when you see even what some of the other justices had to say, they seemed to recognize that Marshall and Washington were the first among equals and that really they were the, the core of the court. There's also one other aspect of this, which is Bushrod was similar to George in one important way. They were both people with very sound judgment. That is, whenever you hear George described, it was in the form of he wasn't necessarily the brightest of the founders, but he was the one with the most reliable judgment, especially as compared to, say, somebody like Alexander Hamilton. Bushrod had that same quality, and the others looked to him for that. And in that sense, he brought balance to Marshall, who I think was a bolder person, which meant that he was capable of doing more, but also was capable of making more mistakes. And sometimes Bushrod saved him from that or saved the others from that. Well, of course, part of the process and part of the critical thing to our legal system, especially the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, is the written word or published opinions. We have oral pleadings and whatnot, but at the end of the day, what really matters is what the justices put on paper. Bushrod writes several opinions over the course of his tenure on the court, and I want to know a little bit more about Bushrod as a writer, not only compared to his fellow justices on the court, but what about his style? In the modern era, Justice Gorsuch, for example, writes very matter-of-factly. Justice Kagan will often put some kind of one-liner designed to make you laugh when you're reading her opinions. Antonin Scalia could have a biting wit or sarcasm in his opinions. What was Bushrod Washington's style? He was a more formal writer. He liked to cite authorities, cases, and scholarly works. Now, some of that was because he wanted to build up the institutional authority of the courts. And one way to do that is by referring as often as possible to other decisions of courts. The second thing is that he, I think, felt that when you wrote opinions, they should be written for lawyers and thus be in a more formal manner, even more formal, let's say, than John Marshall wrote them. But when he would instruct juries, when he was on these circuit riding duties, then he would speak in very plain everyday language. And indeed, people who observed him said he was much better at that than almost any other judge. It is taking a complicated legal concept and describing it in a way that an ordinary person could understand. But when he was writing opinions, he didn't do that. He felt that he had to write it up in a more formal kind of style. The other thing to say about it is that he was a slow writer because he could only see out of one eye. He lost his eyesight in one eye during his mid-30s, and so it just took him more time, which partly explains why he didn't write as many opinions as some of the others that he served with. Whether that influenced his style, right? I mean, it says if you're forced to go slowly, does that make you a more precise person? Perhaps. So it's hard to say whether the style preceded the eye injury or was developed because of it. Uh, That's an interesting question that, unfortunately, I don't think we have enough information to evaluate. Well, he brings that precision to bear on a case called Corfield, and that comes before the court and it deals with the privileges and immunities clause of the Constitution. And what seemingly on the surface is about the reciprocity that states are obligated to give citizens of one to another becomes something much more. And if I recall correctly, this case actually involves oyster beds, but it became something much more, especially with respect to voting rights. 
What should we know about this case and its relationship to Bushrod's legal legacy? Yes, Corfield is Bushrod's most important opinion. It's a circuit decision, not a Supreme Court decision. And the claim basically involved someone from Pennsylvania who wanted to harvest oysters in New Jersey waters. And there was a law in New Jersey basically saying that out-of-state folks could not do that and even then limiting when people living in New Jersey could do it. The question was, could New Jersey restrict access to its oysters in this way? So it's obviously, you know, kind of not a high profile case by any means. But the question it raised was rather profound because it was the first time that this privileges and immunities clause of the Constitution was interpreted by court. And Bushrod, as part of his analysis, concluded that the right to harvest oysters in another state's waters were not one of the privileges and immunities that was guaranteed by the Constitution. But in saying that, and he, and he thought it was a close question. This is one of the things that I discovered in my research. And so because he thought it was a close question, he felt the need to describe more fully what were the privileges and immunities that the Constitution protected. And then he produced a kind of famous list of a series of rights that he thought were fundamental, which included things like making a contract and owning property. And he added in voting as one of these rights. And then he decided the case by saying essentially, well, harvesting oysters is not one of these fundamental rights. Now, that became important later because after the Civil War, when Congress was trying to understand or determine, well, what rights were the newly freed slaves entitled to? Washington's opinion was relied upon by many of them as providing kind of a basic list, though they did not like the idea that voting was included because there was not enough political support at the time to extend the right to vote to either blacks or women. So a version or a more limited version of Washington's list was used to determine the civil rights of Americans. And one of the things I say in the book is that, look, this reference in Corfield to voting rights is really the first time that anybody says that an individual has a fundamental right to vote. And it's a little inexplicable because there's really nothing else in Bushrod's writings that talk much about the right to vote. So we don't really know why he included that. But it then became, it kind of took on a life of its own in later years as people began to think of voting rights more seriously and understand it as being very important to citizenship and what made you a free American. I want to take us back to where we started. You mentioned in the discussion of Corfield that it eventually becomes useful to folks in the Civil War era who are dealing with the expansion of suffrage rights to free African Americans. And just as Bushrod was the heir to Washington politically, he's also the heir to Mount Vernon itself. Bushrod, like his uncle, was the owner of enslaved people. So what should we know about Bushrod's relationship to slavery? So I think there's at least two or maybe three ways to think about that. The first is that as a judge, he doesn't appear to have had any particular bias in deciding cases about enslaved people. That is, he did find in some cases that enslaved people were entitled to liberty when the law required that. Secondly, he was the sort of ceremonial, to some degree, head of 
the American Colonization Society, which was an organization founded in the early 19th century with the idea of establishing a colony in Liberia to which free blacks could go. This was seen kind of as a philanthropic effort and also as something that would perhaps encourage some people to free their slaves. Now, that said, though, Bushrod himself never freed any of his slaves except for one, Westport, who was almost certainly a blood relative, though we do not know exactly how he was related. He could have been the son of one of his brothers or his half-brother. Bushrod's personal record on slavery was about as dismal as most Southern slave owners of the period. That is to say, when he inherits Mount Vernon in 1802 upon Martha Washington's death, Bushrod brings his own enslaved people to Mount Vernon, and he never really displays much interest in doing anything about slavery. I mean, he expresses some qualms about it from time to time in letters, but not in a way that suggests that it was really troubling him all that much. Indeed, at a certain point, he was forced to sell some of his enslaved people because basically Mount Vernon was losing money and he needed to raise money. When this became known, he got criticized quite extensively in the press. How could someone on the Supreme Court and someone who is a nephew of George Washington sell enslaved people? And he responded in a kind of indignant way in a letter, kind of saying, well, it's a decision for me to make, not for others. Just because my uncle decided to free his slaves in his will doesn't mean that I have to do it. The, the letter reads as some consciousness of guilt about the fact that he owned people, but on the other hand, a very defiant tone fitting with what you see later as you get closer to the Civil War from Southern slave owners. It's a complicated part of his legacy, and he and Marshall in this sense were quite similar. They both owned many people, and neither of them really did much about it during their lifetimes. It's something we have to take into account when we think about their overall legacy. More conversations after the break. Gerard, what book are you reading right now? The Words That Made Us, which is by Akhil Amar, who was one of my professors in law school. And this book is an overview of the history of the Constitution from before the Revolutionary War until about 1840. Basically, the generation that fought the revolution and then carried forward the Constitution into its first number of decades. It's a kind of really terrific panoramic overview of everything that's going on. If you want like a one volume history of the United States during that period, like this is the book for you. Who is the author you most admire? It's hard not to say Robert Caro. I wish I could come up with a more original answer than that, but. It has to be. I mean, when you're in my shoes and you do research, you really understand the extraordinary effort that he has spent to do the research that he did, not only on Lyndon Johnson, but also on Robert Moses. And it's just something that I don't think we'll see anybody else like that in the next 50 years. It's just just incredible what he's done. And, you know, I'm so I'm sure like many people are listening to this so eagerly looking forward to the next volume on LBJ. His process is like few others. That's certainly for sure. 
What is the most exciting document you found in your research? The most exciting document actually was for this book. I was in the Chicago History Museum, and they have a library there, and I knew they had a few things on Bushrod, and they brought out a journal more than 100 pages long. And once I, I started to look at it, I got very excited because it was in his handwriting, and they were notes. Notes of all sorts of things, letters, opinions, things he had worked on on cases, including Corfield. The original notes of Corfield were in this journal. No one had ever taken note of this journal before. I don't know why. And it was really helpful because you could get inside his head in a way that's really almost impossible for any judge, right? I mean, judging is very much a kind of internal process. It's why they don't make movies about judges and scientists, right? They, they sit around and they think and it's nothing much to show. But here you actually had him writing notes to himself as he worked through difficult questions. And so I tried as best I could to take advantage of that in the book by including excerpts from these journals on some of these cases and then comparing what he said in his notes or rough drafts to what he ended up saying in his final draft. So without that discovery, I think the book would have definitely been less than what it is. So that's the most exciting thing I've ever found. Well, that's fantastic. And at the end of the day, how do you hope people remember your work? What I'm trying to do, I think, is to shine a light on different aspects of our constitutional past that aren't part of what you learn in high school or watch even on conventional, say, Ken Burns documentaries. As I said at the beginning, I like projects on people or things that others haven't written about. John Bingham was one such project. This is another. And I hope to, to keep doing that because either it proves useful to find some part of the past that then can be applied to the present, or even if it's not useful, it's just something really interesting that people can say, wow, I didn't know that. That's kind of what I hope people take from it. Gerard, this has been great. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. I'm Jim Ambusky, your host and producer for this episode. We received additional support from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music is Witches Brew by C.K. Martin. Head on over to our website for more great interviews or to check out our other podcasts. You can find us at www.georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.